but as we get going in our sermon today, as Phil said, this is going to be kind of a, a bigger sermon. There's a lot of text, and I really struggle with how to approach this. But I think it, it really helps us today to, to kind of see two sides of a coin, so to speak. But this is our second of six sermons in the Titus series. It's a pretty short book, but really the theme through all of it, as we talked about last week when we launched it, is that knowing the truth of God leads to transformation. It leads towards godliness, and that you see right away in the first verse of the book. If you're not open to Titus already, I encourage you to do that. That, that Paul is commissioned to, to, to strengthen the faith of God's people, that they would have the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And last week we talked a little bit about the context of this letter and what the purpose was. Uh, this, this man, Titus, who's a partner, a ministry partner of Paul, is being left behind on this kind of crazy island of Crete to establish house churches and, and to strengthen them. And this, this culture is one of, uh, of just selfishness and wild living and deceit. And it's pretty clear that there's, there's a lot. That he's got his, his work cut out for him. And he gets right into um, some marching orders that we're going to be going through today as, as we look at verses 5 through 16. But as I was looking at this message and, and looking at this series, I kind of realized that, that, that oftentimes it's pretty clear to know in your life what you're devoted to. Right? If you're devoted towards truth or if you're devoted towards lies, if you're devoted towards what is good or what is evil, it, it becomes more and more clear as you get to know someone where their devotion lies. And I thought about it, it's kind of like in the football season that just kicked off this last week. I don't watch a lot of football, but I'll watch a bit. And uh, I noticed that football fans especially are very eccentric in uh, how they dress and how they act. And a lot of times you can tell just by what they're wearing. And a lot of them like to wear headgear to games. What's the deal with football fans and wearing weird things on their head? But you know by what they're wearing on their head where they're devoted. And so this, this last week you could see someone wearing a blue star on their head. And you know that they're devoted to who? The Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. See someone wear a block of cheese on their head. They're devoted to Green Bay Packers. If they wear paper bags on their head, they're devoted to the Vikings. <laughs> now, I am a, I am a homegrown fan. I, I like the Vikings, but after the last couple games, I could understand if this is where you're at. But, but the point is, is that it's pretty clear who people are devoted to by the qualities they exhibit in life. And today we're looking at kind of two extreme examples of those who know the truth and are transformed by the truth and, and those who don't know the truth and are deceived. And I think all of us are going to lie probably somewhere in the middle of these two, but we see these extremes that, that it becomes clear as you know someone if they actually know the truth and if it's transformed them or if they've simply been deceived. So we're going to do this a little bit different today with how many verses we're doing. We're just going to go through verse by verse as we go rather than reading it all at once. And it's really important that we take our time with these verses because it is really important to know what they're saying. But it's also important to know what they're not saying. And I think it's really easy to misunderstand what we're being told and what we're being instructed in this. So uh, if you're not open to Titus 1 already, do that. And I just want to pray for us before we start this message today. So Lord, we want to thank you for your truth, for your word that, that shapes us, informs us, that, that corrects us and encourages us, that your truth, 
can lead us to godliness, and that requires on our part a, a sense of humility, a softness towards receiving that truth. And we know that's, that's done by your Holy Spirit that convicts us and, and shapes us. So God, I pray right now that it would not be me speaking to anyone here. It is not anyone here uh, hearing the words they want to hear or think they're hearing, but that this is truly your Holy Spirit now speaking to us, that you're, you're ageless and, and your perfect truth. God, that it truly would transform us and that we be people who are upright, people who, who are committed towards what is good and what is holy, and it would be evident in our lives, in our qualities, in our characteristics, that people would know that we know the truth and that the truth has shaped us and transformed us. So God, I just pray for this now for everyone, wherever they are at, whether they, they, they have been a Christian their whole life from the time they think, you know, from the time, all the time they can remember, to those who are just kind of uh, considering the faith uh, to begin with and haven't made that step. Speak to all of us this morning where we're at, that your truth truly does settle in our heart and transform us today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to go first now right into the very first verse of this section. And this now is after Paul had done all of the uh, kind of intro and setup of what this letter is about. Now he gets directly into the business with Titus. And he says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so in this whole section, we're going to see the profile of a godly leader. And this is someone who is very evident that the truth has gotten a hold of their lives, that they are being shaped and transformed and sanctified. And now this is kind of like the the furthest extreme. These are kind of the best of the best of your community, the ones that you are are willing to and and glad and joyful to follow as they kind of uh, lead and, and direct the congregation But one thing quick as we see here uh, is that this was not kind of a newfangled idea. This wasn't a um, just an experiment on the island of Crete. Uh, This is what the plan always was. And for whatever the reason, Paul had to leave Crete before this step had been taken. But but the first step for Titus now is to kind of bring order into the chaos and appoint these elders in every town and in every church in all of the New Testament before this, and this is towards the tail end of Paul's life, uh, this was what always happened, is that they appointed these, these leaders, these elders, who exhibited the godly qualities. And we're going to talk a lot about what those qualities are as we go through this. But elders themselves are, are very clear in the, throughout the New Testament that, that these are the ones who are the overseers or the shepherds of the flock. And it's mentioned uh, multiple times by multiple, uh, multiple authors. We see this passage from Paul and a couple passages, uh, a couple books earlier in 1 Timothy 3. It's explained. Uh, it's explained by the Apostle Peter in his epistle, uh, specifically in 1 Peter 5, and also the Apostle Luke in the book of Acts. So you see this, that this is widely known, widely accepted, the governance system that God has called in these churches And now the qualities are going to follow this. But one important word I want to look at in in this verse is that to appoint elders is not simply to um, just accept whatever comes along or or hope that someone says yes and then please beg them never uh, to quit being an elder. Appoint here is actually synonymous with the word ordain. Ordain. And this is really saying that we confirm that this person is, in fact, called and equipped 
by God. Ordain is, is something, there's, there's a reverence here of when you appoint elders, you're saying, we believe that God has led you to do this. And now we, we release you and bless you in what this service will be. So this, this list that's about to follow, if you're going to make a step like that, there's a lot of qualities that have to be exhibited in a godly leader. It's, it's not some willy-nilly thing. And Paul isn't saying to Titus, go into every town and say the first five people that raise their hands are elders. All right? And I'm not going to tell you what that means, but no backsies once you commit to this. This is something that was done very, very carefully and for good reason. And so if you move on to, to verse 6, we're going to start to, to kind of unpack all of these things that you should see in a godly leader. Someone who, who needs to know the truth and was transformed by that truth. So verse 6 says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not, diso- not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. All right, this again is one of those things we have to know what this is saying and what this is not saying. This is not saying that the elder needs to be a perfect person with a perfect marriage and perfect children, right? The word blameless here is, is very important to understand off the top. And understanding words makes a big difference because it, 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 really, uh, it really then affects the whole trajectory of everything afterwards. You know, the other day, uh, my wife asked me, if I had seen the dog bowl, and, and I looked at her surprised and confused and said, I didn't know she could. <laughs> right? The meaning of words here are very important. You're going to get that joke later. <laughs> but if you look at the word blameless and think this means perfect, that, that a leader, an elder must be perfect, you're always going to be confused. You're always going to be disappointed. In fact, blameless here, if you're expecting any leader in your life to be perfect, you will always be frustrated. So if you want your president to be perfect, you're going to be let down. Parents, if you want your children to be perfect, you're really going to be let down. And if you expect your pastors and your elders and your leaders of a church to be perfect, you'll be very let down. There's no perfect people in the church. And if the qualification was perfect, we'd have no leaders in it. Blameless here means to be above reproach or above questioning. And that really means to be the kind of person that if an accusation was made against you, the people of that community would say, that doesn't sound like the person I know. I I know them. I I know their character. I've seen them do. That doesn't sound like them. And it shows that there's this consistent character and integrity in your life that, that leaves you above those kinds of questions. And also means not knowingly and willingly putting yourself in dumb situations. So to be blameless is to be a person that is respectable, that is honorable. But it certainly does not mean a person that never makes mistakes. Mistakes are okay. But it's the consistency of character and integrity of your life that you need to look for in a leader. And to be faithful to his wife could be interpreted a lot of different ways. But let me just give you the direct translation from the Greek. That they need to be a one-woman man. Okay, And this means that they have, there's a sanctity to marriage. There's a faithfulness to that. 
There's no such thing as polygamy or extramarital affairs or, or having devotion that lies other places. You are, you are completely faithful to this sacred marriage that's built on a promise. And that's what you need to have in your leaders. Marriage is really the closest relationship we have on earth to compare to our saving faith and saving relationship in Jesus. And all of it is built on promise and commitment. If the requirement was a perfect marriage for elders, we'd have none. And could you just imagine a system like that where, where they're there and, and someone else in the church says, like, hey, I need your help because I'm having a problem in my marriage. And the elder would say, uh, that word again, problem? I've never, I've never heard of this. What is a problem in marriage? These are people who walk through difficulties like anyone else, but there's a consistent devotion and faithfulness there. And then the third part of this is that they, they have to have children, and this is uh, translated as children who believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. A couple things here to know what this says. We need to know what this, what this doesn't say. And first, child here in the Greek really means like a young child who lives in the home. So adult children here, you're always responsible as a parent, but at some point you're not responsible for your adult children. And, and they have to leave and cleave and they make their own decisions. But those who believe, really this is better translated as those who are faithful. right? Because if we make the requirement that an elder's children must be believers, this is a really hard requirement to uphold. Because first of all, we don't know the hearts of people. Every child must make that step of faith for themselves. But then you're put in this position of if an elder has a newborn, they'd immediately be disqualified from this until that child comes to an age where they can profess faith. And it creates a lot of interesting dynamics if, if, you, if you interpret this as those who have a professing faith in Jesus. What this does is it, it tells us that, that, that elders, godly leaders, need to be devoted to their families. They need to be devoting to discipling or disciplining or raising their children right. And if they're children who are just wildly disobedient and there's no discipline in the home, then how would you expect them to manage God's household? And I want to read then a portion here from 1 Timothy 3. If you go back a couple of letters in your Bible. In 1 Timothy 3, this is another epistle from Paul talking to Timothy as he's bringing organization to the churches in Ephesus. And he says this as he's going through these requirements of an elder. Verse 4, he says, He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. Again, this is that idea of obedience or faithfulness to parents. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So the closest example do we have to church leadership or spiritual discipleship is how we raise children. And for any person, regardless of your position in church or in life, the most important you, job you have, if you are a parent, is being a parent and discipling to your kids. And I know not all of us have kids, but if you do, that needs to be your priority, uh, aside from your spouse. So how you're faithful with that opportunity kind of has some bearing on how you'd be faithful in this opportunity to manage God's household as a leader. So we see here that there's these qualifications that are laid out right away that's like, if, if someone wants to be an elder, 
you need to take a really close look at their personal life and kind of pick it apart. Now, that doesn't sound fun, right? And it sounds very personal, but, but it is for a good reason. Because we want to know the person that they are. But this is so different than any other thing in life. Could you imagine applying for a job in corporate America and they say, before we go any further, I want to know all about your marriage. I want to know all about how you raise and discipline your children. I want to know all about your personal life, what you do and when. And if you're in a place where you could be in, in questionable areas, I want to know all about your character and integrity. It's, a, it's an insane idea in the secular world, but now we're invited to do that in the spiritual world. Because we want to know that the truth of God is alive and well on them. And though they may not be perfect and certainly won't be, that they are, in fact, exemplary. So we see this just really quick profile of their personal life. And, and anyone who wants to be an elder is probably going, this is getting kind of uncomfy. But as the famous words in the infomercial go, but wait, there's more. And there's a lot more. We go on to verse 7 and we read, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. We hear that word again. And it goes on to explain what that would look like here. They're not overbearing. They're not quick-tempered. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Now you might be thinking, okay, we were talking about elders, and now we're talking about overseers. There's just this quick, rapid change. So what's the difference between an elder and an overseer? And, and the short answer is nothing. Right? The long answer is nothing. Okay, there's no difference. In fact, all throughout the Bible, the, the words elder, overseer, shepherd, they're all used synonymously and interchangeably. And the words for each of them are actually rooted in the same ideas. But it's kind of like saying today, what's the difference between uh, a policeman, an officer, and a cop? Nothing. It's just different words to explain the same position. So an overseer really means overwatcher. Right? And this is, gives you that shepherd connotation that they're watching over a flock. That's the function of an elder. But now we see that if they are, in fact, to manage God's household and be blameless, that there's some qualities that need, they need to avoid. And we're going to start going through these a bit quicker here because I think you can draw the conclusions and the applications yourself. But they can't be overbearing. And this simply means that they're not a micromanager. They don't, they don't need, like, dominant control over all things, but they're gentle in the way they approach things. That they're not quick-tempered. And this really means like they, they don't fly off the handle quickly. And this, this talks about emotional control. That they're not ones to, known, ones to be known to have sudden and drastic emotional responses to things. That there is a calmness and there's a consistency in them. So if they're ones that are known to raise their voices quickly and pound tables, they're probably not a good fit for elder. They're not given to drunkenness, which is easy to understand. This is more of the physical self-control, that they don't become inebriated, they, they don't become drunk, and, and, and they, they're responsible in these things in life. They're not violent. And, and this word, when we think of violence, we almost always think of physical violence. And this word in the Greek doesn't, doesn't lead you there directly, though that is certainly part of it. 
But this is verbal or emotional violence or any way that inflicts pain or damage on others. They can't be looking to hurt others and things in their life. And the last thing that they need to avoid in this is that they don't pursue dishonest gain. And again, this, when we think of this, we always think of dishonest gain as, as stealing. When we think of stealing, we think of money. Now, that's certainly included in this, but this means dishonest gain in any area of their life. If they're looking to take advantage of the church in some way in which they can get what they want or desire, they're not fit for a position like this. What this really means is that an elder needs to be doing these things for the right reasons. And that other verse that I had referenced is 1 Peter 5. And I encourage you to now go forward to that. This is about four books forward in your Bible. 1 Peter 5. This is verses uh, 1, 1 through 4 that I'm going to read. And in this book, it's the same idea that the Apostle Peter is writing this circular letter to all of the, the scattered believers around the world. This is one that had made it to, to many places, and now he's appealing to all of the godly leaders in all of those churches. And he says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. And this is, again, we talk about elders shepherds, watching over, overseers. These words are all being used together. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ, he's talking about here, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Here we see the Apostle Peter in another letter supporting exactly this idea. You don't pursue dishonest gain. You're not lording this position over others to get what you want. But you approach this willingly and gently and for the purpose of service and love. And the reward you get is not going to be in this earth. Okay, The reward you get is going to be when, when Jesus, the chief shepherd, appears. And then you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. This is really saying we need, we need to test the motives here. What's the reason they want to do this? And in 1 Peter 5, we read, if they're doing this simply just because no one else would, and they just reluctantly came into this and said, okay, I'll serve. I didn't want to, but I'll be here. They're not a good elder. Right? If, if they're saying, I have a specific agenda and reason I want to do this, and there's something I want to milk out of this leadership role, they're not a good elder. It needs to be purely for the purpose of service and love and for the, the, the health of the body. And if they do it well, we read also in First uh, Timothy that they will receive double honor for that. They'll receive lots of respect from the community. So, who wants to be an elder so far? Nobody? All right, we're going to keep going for the rest of this. Verses 8 and 9, and this is now the things that they should exhibit. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that, no, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And the first word we see here, that the qualities they should exhibit, is that they need to be hospitable. 
All right, when we think of hospitality, we often think of like able to throw a really good social gathering, you know, able to throw a good party. But in this culture, hospitality wasn't about like having entertainment or providing entertainment, but one that would willingly and readily open their heart and their home to others. It's the love of strangers. And this is totally different than the culture of which these elders are being called. And, and we'll see in a moment that their, um, their culture was one of, of selfish living and, and things about getting what they want. But here we see that this is about sharing all you have. And so a criminal idea is, is saying that what is yours is mine. Right? A selfish idea is saying that what is mine is mine. But this hospitable idea is saying what is mine is yours. And that's the quality that you want to see because eldership, leadership requires a lot of giving to others with nothing in return. They need to be a lover of good, one who loves what is good. And this simply means that they have a passion towards what is good and it drives their life, that they're self-controlled. And this, this really means that there is this, uh, this idea is mentioned a lot actually in Titus, self-control, because it's so different than the culture. But it literally means just being sensible in situations and keeping your wits about you and avoiding what you know is not right. That they're upright. This speaks of integrity. And this means that this person is the same anywhere they go, whether you see them at church or in their home or in the supermarket or at a sports game. They're always kind of the same person. What you see is what they get, and they're unlikely then to be compromised in situations. That they're holy. And this is again where you get this idea of, okay, our leaders need to be holy, which means they need to be perfect. It's not what it's saying. It's saying that they need to be pure, that they're unpolluted by the things of this world, and one that strives to be Christ-like in their life in all areas. They will fail, but they're striving for this. That they're disciplined. And this again is where you see there's a big difference between knowing what is right and doing what is right. You may know, for example, that you you should eat well and work out, but if you're undisciplined, you won't. And for a godly leader, they need to model their lives in consistency by always doing what is right and good. And here's the most important things that they hold firmly to the message as it has been taught. And this means that the Bible becomes the foundation of all of their decisions. And this is so important when you have a a church rooted in God's truth. It's not about man-made ideas. It's not about assumptions. It's not about traditions. It's not about the things that we have thought of and created. But everything, in every decision, you say, let's go to the Bible. Let's go to God's word and hold firmly to it in all of our decisions. The most important part is as it has been taught. You don't take out the verses that you you don't agree with or you are confused about. Everything as it has been taught is, is what we do. And that's how churches become successful is when they keep the word of God as their foundation. And then they encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is really talking about the idea of, of being willing and able to teach those around you. Encourage means like, hey, you're doing a great job, keep going. And to refute or rebuke or correct is say, hey, you're off base here. You need to stop what you're doing and kind of redirect here. 
But in all of these things, it's, it's important that they keep watch over this, this congregation, over the flock, and, and to be careful of things that are straying from the word of God. So, we went through all of these things, and I'm going to put them on the screen here so you can see it. These are the things that are exemplified in a godly leader, all of the qualities, all of the things that we really decide what is, what is true and what is not in their lives, that they live above reproach, that they're faithful to their wife, that they have faithful and disciplined children, that they, have an overbear, that they do not have an overbearing attitude, a quick temper, they're not given to drunkenness, they don't have a violent disposition, they don't have a pursuit of dishonest gain, that they are hospitable, that they're lovers of good, that they exhibit self-control, that they have integrity and uprightness in their life, that there's a holiness or a Christ-likeness, that they live with discipline and always do what is good, and they're, they're devoted to God's truth, and they're diligent to teach God's word whenever the, the opportunity comes up. These are all of the things that we need to look for in a leader and an elder. So again, raise your hand if you want to be an elder. I've got one. All right. Not even the elders raise their hand. Okay. <laughs> this is incredibly difficult stuff. And so as we kind of wrap up this portion of it, I want to make a couple of quick applications. And the first is this, is that that leadership is to be taken seriously. Who we put into leadership in our church needs to be taken seriously. And this applies more than just elders, because there's many different types of leadership in the church, okay? But, But who you put in charge of a Bible study, who you put in charge of your children, who you put in charge of the spiritual health and the direction and the oversight of the church, an elder, it's all incredibly important, Okay? And you need to hold people accountable to standards. And I just want to say our current elder board I've worked with for for a number of years. I know them well, and I know them in this role better than anyone else in this church. Even, Even their spouses. I know them as elders better than anyone. And we have got some good ones. And, and, and they're, 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 they're men who are just devoted to this community. There's so much sacrifice. They give so much of themselves. Everything is approached prayerfully and carefully. And by the way, these are the men that I submit to. And, and I do it willingly. And I do it happily because I know who they are. And they help me. There's things that I want to do, but they, they, they talk about it. Or directions. I'm, I, I, and there's group wisdom. And they're, they're godly men that need to be respected, and we're very, very blessed to have them. When you find good leaders who exhibit these qualities, then submit to them. And that's the biblical message. And if they're not good leaders, then replace them. But we have some great ones. But the reality is not all of us will be leaders, and that's the biblical model. What we see throughout the Bible is that there's no such thing as a church with one leader. Okay, so if you have a church that one leader is over, that's a bad idea. And there's no such thing as a church in which everybody is a leader. That's also a very bad idea. There's a select group of people, and there's a lot of uh, flexibility in how you organize that leadership. So we're not all going to be leaders. But when I put these qualities up on the board, you need to look at them, and you need to say, I want to be that kind of person. Even if I'm not officially a leader, This is what it looks like. These are the qualities of someone who knows the truth of God and that 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 truth has transformed them. 
That's the takeaway here, really, is, is this is speaking in our community only to a, a handful of people, but to all of us, we need to, to strive to be like them and to submit to the leadership that you have. Hebrews 13 says it pretty well, that you are to obey your leaders. This is Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who give an account. And that's the, the reality is at the end of the day, the ones that the elders, the leaders are accountable to Jesus. Right? They, have to, they have to talk to the, the chief shepherd. And so if you submit to them, it allows them to do this with joy instead of groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. When you have godly leaders, submit to them. And they, they will not be perfect, but they will be good. And when you do that, the, 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 whole, ch- the whole health of the community increases. So what we see next, though, is, is those who are on the opposite side of the coin. And we're going to go through this pretty quick. As as I'm going through this message, I really debated if I make this one message or two messages. I wanted to make it one, but I wanted to put all of the emphasis on the first part because the second part is is the stuff we need to be aware of, but we don't want to spend too much time talking about. And that's those who do not believe or those who are misled and, and believe lies. And then they're not going to submit to anything in their life. And that's the very first verse we read here in in verse 10. And this is, again, talking about the necessity of appointing good and godly leadership. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, as it goes on to say, especially those of the circumcision group. What we see here is is what I would call kind of the, the unholy trinity or Satan's trifecta. And a trifecta is if it's really if you if you can guess the first three winners of a race perfectly, um, then you would have like a trifecta. In this case, if you want to guess the first three ways that Satan would attack someone, this is it: rebellion, distraction, and deception. And we see that in this first verse that there's many rebellious people. And this is in submission again is this theme throughout Titus. It's a theme throughout the New Testament that, that we are to submit ourselves to leaders, but ultimately we're to submit ourselves to God and His truth. But this is Satan's playbook from the very beginning. Every time he's tempted someone towards sin, it's it's through the heart of rebellion. That's that's what sin is, is rebellion and against God. And those who are misled or deceived are always going to have the spirit of rebellion in their lives. I do what I want when I want, and I submit to no one. You have to be wary of those people who refuse to submit to any kind of authority in their life. Because in Romans 13, it tells us pretty clearly that if they're unwilling to submit to authority, they're probably unwilling to submit to God himself. The heart of rebellion is at the, is at the core of anyone who is misled or deceived. And then we see that they're full of meaningless talk. And this is really distraction. It's stuff that just doesn't matter. It's, 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 things, it's just foolish controversies. And the whole point is, is to take your attention away from what really matters. And it's clear that, that every church has people with problems. Right? That's all of us. But then every church also has problem people. And that was true 2,000 years ago when Paul authored this letter. And there, there's people who just are talking about dumb things. And if you ever notice, the problem people never argue about things that matter. Okay, It's never like, I have a huge problem in this outreach effort we're making because I believe there's another, another method that can reach more people with the good news of Jesus and transform their lives e- eternally. 
that's not the things that they're arguing about. It's things like, I don't like the carpet color in the sanctuary. It's things like, there should be more icing on those cupcakes. It's meaningless talk, and in the end, this is Satan's game plan. He's trying to distract you from the ministry of God. Now, if you go forward a, a couple of chapters, Paul kind of puts a period, or maybe an exclamation point, on this point. In verse uh, 9 of chapter 3 of Titus, he says, Avoid the foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Again, the meaningless talk. Avoid all that because these are unprofitable and useless. Another way of saying that is that they are stupid and worthless. Okay, There's distraction that Satan wants to do for church communities, especially those who are deceived. Just ignore it. Because the Proverbs tell us that to argue with a fool is to become one. Avoid the meaningless talk. And the last part of, of, of Satan's kind of trifecta here is, is deception. And that's the ultimate form here is that at some point, people are going to believe lies as truth. And, and the worst part about deception, those who are deceived, you do have some who I think are being referred to in this section that we, we call false teachers those who, who know that what they believe is a lie, and they're knowingly spreading it around for the sake of, of dishonest gain, to, to, to take advantage of others. And, and those are people, obviously, you need to be very careful with. But this is also speaking of those who are kind of unknowingly deceived, right? They, 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 they truly believe that what they believe is right and true and good, and, and they have all of the energy in the world to kind of fight for it. And they do it passionately because in their mind, they they are right. But here's the biggest difference between those who are deceived and those who really know the truth of God. That those, those who are misled and are passionate about the pursuits never do it with joy. There is never joy in their life. And enough is never enough. And they could receive exactly what they're asking for and they're still not content but someone who is on the right side of an issue, right? someone who, who knows God's truth and, is, and is, is doing all they can, even if things aren't going their way, even if things aren't successful in the moment, even if things are hard, there's going to be a spirit of joy in their life. And that's, that's, that's a great way to tell if someone is deceived or not, because I'll tell you what, a lot of them don't know. This, these are the people we, we, we not only need to be careful for, but we, we need to... We need to be compassionate about because I think some of them don't realize where they're at. And that's where we go on in the next couple verses. And again, we're going to go through this pretty quickly here. This is our response to a misled person. Well, first of all, it says it kind of harshly, (laughs) that they must be silenced. All right, And this this is the idea. This isn't like censor them and put masking tape over their mouths. It's like don't give them a platform in the church. All right, Because really in all this, whether they're doing it knowingly or unintentionally, they're disrupting whole households. They're creating divisions. And they're teaching things they ought not to teach for the purpose of getting what they want. It's not for the sake and the benefit of the whole community. community. It's, it's just to get what they want. In verse 12, which I won't have on the screen here, Paul goes on to say, basically, look, it's not because I have a grudge against these people. I'm not being unfair to them. Like, this is what the Cretans say about the Cretans. And he says in verse 12, that uh, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. 
and is referring to a philosopher, which for them was like a prophet. Like this, this guy who grew up in this culture on this island said, yeah, that's who we are. And they all agree with it. You've got to be careful. If, if they're coming into a church for the sake of dishonest gain and believing a lie, you have to, you don't, don't give them a platform. Don't make them a Bible study teacher. Don't make them an elder of the church. And verse 13 goes on to say it a little more clearly, 13 and 14. So then rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to the Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Again, this can sound really harsh, but, but we see the motive behind what we should be doing. And really, this is a charge to the elders here, too. But we all have responsibility here. Correct them, not for the sake of feeling superior over them or, or, or putting them down in their spot, but because you love them. And you want so desperately for them to know the truth. You want them to be sound in the faith. And so not only is the action important here, but the motivation behind that action is is just as important. You want them to to go away from the lies. You don't want them to reject the truth anymore. You want them to know the truth and for it to be evident in their life. And what we see as we wrap up in today's sermon, the final two verses, is is really the, the sad fate For someone who is misled, someone who believes the lies, and someone who is deceived. Again, this is either unintentionally or intentionally. And Paul goes on to say that to the pure, verse 15, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. And this really means a couple of things. And and the first is to understand the words of Jesus here. And, and what he's saying earlier in the Gospels is, is that it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out of them that defiles them. Because that really reveals what's, what's living in their heart. Right? To someone who knows the truth of God and has been transformed by it, they're not going to be perfect. But God is working in them in a way that, that things will be led towards purity. But to those who don't know the truth, nothing is pure. And then this develops this attitude in their life of, of nothing is good, right? And it's the, the chronic complainers and, and those who cannot see the sin in their own life, but they only see the sin of everyone around them. And it's just a really sad circumstance. And, and, and the one specific group that he was talking to was the Judaizers or the circumcision group who'd come into churches and just pick apart everything the church was doing because nothing was ever pure. Nothing was ever good. And this is where it comes to the saddest and maybe the harshest conclusion in verse 16. That they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now if it sounds harsh, it's because it is. And I think this is God's like final wake-up call to people who are being deceived. It's like, you're going towards nothing good. There's nothing that is good from this. And I've referenced this before. Pastor Phil has a book on his desk called The Hard Sayings of the Bible. And I always joke because the book is like this thick. <laughs> the reality is there's a lot of hard stuff to understand in the Bible. These verses are in there. And, and this is a wake-up call not only to deceived, but, but to the rest of us. 
is like if you know someone that's misled by the truth, then, then you have to intervene and do something. And, and we're always so hesitant to do that because it's we, we want to say, I, I, I don't want to sound judgy. I, I don't want to get in business that's not mine. But like if you know someone that you know is deceived, then, then do something because they, they might claim to know God, but they really don't. And the end result is so incredibly sad. And I wish I did have more time to speak on this first, but I know I don't. But, but, but this is the point I want you to know from this, is that there's no such thing as someone that's too far gone or too lost. For someone in this position, there is still incredible hope for them. And the reason I know that is because the man who wrote this was in that position. Paul was one of these guys, right? And anyone who knew the truth would say, Paul is gone and he is lost let him rot in a grave and die. There's nothing we can do for him. But, but God got a hold of his heart, and, and he, his eyes were open to the truth, and it radically transformed him. There's no such thing as someone that is too far gone. And if you come to that point in your life as someone who knows the truth, then you need to re- rewire, re- rewire your brain. Do what you can to reveal the truth of God in their life. There's always always hope. And so the question in all of this is we kind of see the bad side of this. It is not for us to say, you know, what should we people, you know, what should people do with those sinners? That's not that's not the question. The question we need to be asking is is what do people do with their sin? And that's how we know what side of the truth they're on. If there's a humility and a repentance and 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 you're willing to this to admit the wrongs in your life and to turn away from them, then like, you're not a problem person, okay? Because the reality is all of us are going to find qualities that we're exhibiting, kind of like this, this mid-led person, misled person. But if you believe that you are without sin, and you can only focus on the sins of others, or you scoff at correction, if you're argumentative, if you're contentious, if you only take from the church, you never give, and you, you want to complain about everything you do get, I think in these verses, God is kind of telling you maybe you're a problem, right? And, and, and you have to just come with a sense of humility. But I, I do want to make this clear. If you are a perfect person, you're not welcome at Maple Plain Community Church, okay? <laughs> we don't want perfect people here because that is the people who are the problem. We are a place for sinners to come to understand that all that has gone wrong in their life, the deceptions that they've held true, and then find the hope and the truth and the joy of knowing Jesus and the forgiveness that he, only he, can give. That's all of our jobs. That's just not for the elders. That's just not for the leaders. It's for all of us who know the truth. The question, I, I, the, the message today is not go and be perfect, or at least appear to be. Because if perfection is your goal, you're going to fail, and you're going to fail all those around you. But rather, recognize your faults and bring them to God. Repent of that sin and, and live with humility and then walk in the freedom and the joy of that. First John 1, 8 and 9 kind of, kind of sums that up uh, very well. That if we claim to be without sin, we lie to ourselves. Okay? And the truth of God is not in us. We talked about that truth. If you, if you think you have no issues or no problems, you're lying to yourself and you don't know God's truth. But if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
And that truth will lead you in the path of godliness and transform you. Go to God with your faults and failures and find the forgiveness and the redemption in him that's only found in him. Let's pray as we close today. So Lord, we thank you uh, for, for your ministry in our lives, that you can reconcile us to, to you, that, that we have come, that we have sinned. And, and God, I just pray for everyone here that, that is, it is an offensive idea at its core, that we have sinned and that we fall short of the glory of God, but that is your truth. And, and, and accepting that truth is vital for us to experience the, the freedom and the forgiveness and the joy that only you can bring. So I pray for all of us now, God, that we don't just look and, and evaluate those around us, that we evaluate ourselves first and know the log sticking out of our own eyes. But God, I pray that we could all be people that exhibit the qualities that we saw, that we focused on so much today, that we can be people that is evident that your truth is at work in us, that the fruit of our lives is, is clear to those around us, that the people look at us and say, something's different about them. And that we could clearly explain that, that the reason is not because of us, but because of you. God, and I just pray that many more can experience that freedom. But it starts with a heart of humility and repentance. God, all of us need to be there. And through that, we can experience the joy and the revival that you bring. So, God, I pray for this now. As we go through this series, as we keep uh, touching on these topics, uh, God, I just pray that your spirit would continue to be working in us, that we could be people that are truly transformed by your truth, and that we can just have joy in that together. We pray that now in your name, Jesus.